Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and today we're going to talk with Indiana Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Bennett. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. And our website is wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to send us an email uh, with your questions or your comments. Dr. Bennett, thanks for being here. Great to be with you today, Bob. Right. Glad to have you here. And uh, this is going to be, I would guess, we'll get some phone calls today. You know, it's a, it's a tough time for school, public schools. I think uh, there are a lot of things going on. And in Monroe County, this has been a big week because the, the teachers union and the school corporation got an agreement and the agreement included uh, some things that were not particularly uh, comforting to uh, anybody in the community because the agreement included uh, no stipends for any kind of extracurricular activities. Um, the board had originally said they were going to do away with the librarians, the, the media specialists, but they were restored. So there's been a lot of give and take uh, as they try – the school corporation here tries to cut about $5.8 million from its budget. And I know you're hearing these stories from around the state. Is, uh, is Monroe County in any kind of a unique situation or is this sort of a common thing around the state? We're seeing – um, I think there there are a number of issues, Bob. I, I think it's it's it is common. I think the things we're seeing are are common. Obviously, every community has has some nuances, mm-hmm. um, and, and many communities have chosen all kinds of different manners to uh, you know all kinds of different paths to address uh, the issues. I, it's it's one of those, those things as we look at it today, Bob. And you started the the the, the segment with it's a challenging time or it's tough mm-hmm. times and. And, you know, one of the things we're also seeing is, is I think it's, it, in, in a lot of instances, is incredibly exciting times for education mm-hmm. because while we focus and we talk a lot about money, um, we're also in the midst or in the throes of some incredible education reform that is being discussed nationally. Um, I believe President Obama and Secretary Duncan have generated an, a tremendous national debate on education. Um, I think we are trying to to perpetuate that debate in Indiana about education and the way children are taught. So while we're having these difficult economic times, we're also having very exciting discussions about changing really the, the landscape of education in this state for Indiana's children. So exciting, challenging, sometimes frustrating, sometimes rewarding. There are a lot of there are a lot of ways we can describe it, but. Uh, these are definitely unique times in Indiana education. I think you – last time you and I spoke, uh, just a couple months ago, you you referred to it as a reset. You think that this might be a reset for education funding. I don't think there's a question. It's a, it's a reset and I think it's going to cause some fundamental discussions to, to occur, some fundamental changes in discussions. And we say reset for, for the benefit of our listeners. Um, you know, as you and I discussed when we met a couple months ago um, – I think when you take a look at, at funding in the state for education, what we will see is this dynamic, that the amount of money that education has out of the state's budget, which is about 50 percent in 2011, will will be at probably no more if not less than we saw in 2006. Mm-hmm. So it's going to create the need for some of these very difficult discussions about how we address education uh, in terms of what's important, how we prioritize those very important initiatives, how we make sure we put funds to what's important. So I I think it's a, a time when we will refocus education on those big bets so to speak, that, that, that really drives student achievement. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to – I have lots of questions I want to ask, but we're, I know we're going to get a lot of calls today, and we have our first one already. So John's on the phone. John, go ahead. 
Hello, thanks. I'm enjoying the show. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the um, uh, requirement that uh, either you or, or Mr. Daniels put in place that requires teachers to have a college degree in their area of study. Um, can you <laughs> briefly explain that, if you would? Yeah, this is uh, uh, John's talking, of course, about some new uh, teacher licensing requirements that have been passed. And uh, <coughs> Dr. Bennett's got a little cough, so uh, he's back. Wrong though. pipe there, just <laughs> Bob. John, thank you for the question. Uh, John's question focuses on what we refer to as REPA, which is uh, basically Indiana's licensing reform initiative. Um, John, the the, the the actual reform that you're talking about is the requirement for secondary educators to have content area preparation in the field that they will be teaching. So, for instance, uh, chemistry teachers will have to have content preparation, content major preparation in chemistry. Um, and and we believe that's, that is kind of a cornerstone. Uh, content knowledge is a cornerstone of what we're really looking for. Now, John, one of the things that I, I hope we are able to convey today through your question is the issue that this is not a discussion of content knowledge and no pedagogical knowledge. Um, you know, content knowledge versus how to teach instruction. That's not the case. What we are saying is that the schools of education can still require what they believe to be the whatever number of content hours necessary to prepare a teacher pedagogically, but the requirement for content area certification and content area preparation is a must. So, again, it's, it's, it's really going to be incumbent upon the schools of education to find the right balance. Um, you know, it, just this week, Harvard University – uh, released a study that is is really a very pretty compelling and thought provoking study regarding uh, it does it make a difference where teachers go to school does it make a difference what their preparation is um, and really what they found was a lot of a lot of the differences made in the first couple of years of experience um, and there were some pretty strong comments about there's do master's degrees in education really pay a dividend? And there's a tremendous amount of evidence to that that says no. So what we're doing, John, is, again, for those secondary teachers, um, again, content area preparation is is essential, as is the right mix of pedagogical. Uh, middle school teachers have similar re- requirements. Uh, the elementary teachers, we really left in a lot of ways, I'm going to say unchanged, but we did add the requirement that if you get an education major, you have to have a content area minor. Um, okay. So uh, we did not really address a lot of difference in special ed because many of the, much of the special ed preparation is pretty pedagogically sensitive. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you foresee that causing any kind of um, difficulty in finding qualified or people to meet those qualifications in the short run? Actually, John, that's a thank you for that question. It's a very insightful question because what we believe is this is going to open doors for a lot of other people because some of the other options, some of the other things that we opened up in the licensing reform are alternative pathways to becoming certified as a teacher. So, um, you know, maybe, you know, a, a, a different entity, and I'll use an education service center, or maybe the principals association will develop a teacher preparation program, and they will they will come to the professional standards board to provide a certification path for someone who may have a biology major, who doesn't want to go back to a university, take X number of credit hours, but wants to become certified. So what we believe is we're also going to build in some alternative pathways for maybe mid-career changers, uh, maybe folks who have not considered education. Uh, and frankly speaking, we've received a tremendous amount of support, and I think this is incredibly important, from some of our minority organizations who feel this may be a way for us to attract quality minority candidates into the education pool. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, John. Thanks a lot for your call. Our numbers is 855 
877-285-9348. The website is WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. John's question was a real good one. That was an issue, of course, that was uh, really hot a few months ago. Um, and, and I guess I want to ask for a, a little more clarification. I'm, uh, right now, as I understand it, I think Indiana University has a program. So somebody who's in mid-career could go to IU, I think take maybe one year of classes and, and be certified to teach. Um, so is that, the, is that the kind of thing that, that you're looking at with these new licensing requirements? That is, is could someone who has been a, uh, a, a journalist, let's mm-hmm. say, you know, and hasn't taught have, you know, be, be able to be certified through what, a, a six-week, six-month, one-year kind of program? Yeah, exactly. We, again, we would leave those types of things up to the universities. Um, how they can provide that type of certification. We know uh, from many of the processes out there, um, I'll give you a great example, Bob, um, Teach for America. You know, I have a, a very good, my, my best friend in high school, his daughter has just been accepted to Teach for America, and uh, she is going to do their boot camp down in, in, uh, in Mississippi. It's a six-week program. Uh, those, those high flyers, academically then are placed into schools. They do Saturday professional development. They, they get a master's degree. Um, so we know that there are a lot of ways, if you will, to skin this cat to get great teachers um, into our schools. And, and I just think we should make the opportunity available to bring the type of expertise that's necessary forward. So the answer to your question is I spent uh, two years as a career and technical education principal. And, you know, it was amazing. We would hire computer repair folks who had never been to a school of education, and in some instances never to a university, and we would actually certify them as an Indiana teacher based on their experience. And then we got them the pedagogical training that they needed as they taught so that their professional development was job embedded, which we know is the most – is really the most um, you know beneficial type of professional development. So I think we just have to look – at how we attract educators differently in the 21st century. Okay, we've got a, got a couple of phone calls. Uh, Don is next. Don? Yes, hi. hi. Um, I had the opportunity to observe uh, an earth science teacher in one of the Indianapolis uh, schools. And uh, her background was um, anything but earth science. Um, but she was also their swimming coach. And I pointed out to her that looking at one of her exams, the incorrect, uh, technically incorrect answers uh, that were, you know, quite multiple choice questions where there were more than two correct answers. Uh, and she wasn't aware of the fact that her basic lack of knowledge of her field was such that she didn't recognize the fact that a sulfide mineral, two sulfide minerals listed, uh, uh, were sulfide minerals, which is just a very picky point. However, it, it really addresses the issue that, as to me as a, as a geologist, to see uh, someone teaching in my field incorrectly, and I understand from enough about education that when you teach something incorrectly to new learners, that misinformation stays with them. So, yes, I full-heartedly agree with the requirement, uh, particularly in science, that if you're teaching a science class in chemistry, geology, or not geology, but earth sciences, physics, uh, biology, you nearly need to know and not be teaching straight out of a teaching manual the way this teacher was. Um, To me, that's a a very fundamental uh, importance. Uh, It doesn't matter whether that teacher's uh, classroom management was wonderful, but if her students were learning incorrectly and getting uh, incorrect instruction, that's uh, not exactly what I would consider a good education. Thank you. Uh Don, thank you for your comments. And, 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 you know, I want to take that a step beyond what Don's talking about. I was on a panel a couple weeks ago with a uh, principal of an inner city school in Indianapolis, and um, he was discussing that he had a math teacher in a, a, that taught, was teaching middle school pre-algebra. And because of her license, she was teaching sixth graders, because her license was an elementary generalist license, she'd only had two math courses. 
And she was literally just days ahead of her students in, in preparation. So Don's point's well taken. And I, I think that's where we are really trying to focus is to say, look, this is not this is not a knock on pedagogy. I, I, I have an education major. You know, I am a science teacher. I'm a biology teacher by trade. And, um, you know, I had I was fortunate enough to have a professor at Indiana University Southeast who told me, take your elective courses in your content area. Make yourself a content area expert. So, you know, I agree with Don, and, and I think what we're seeing is we have to have folks who have that, that Im- very important content knowledge to present to our, our students. And, and, frankly, we hope that we attract folks like Bob to come. You know, why can't, Bob, why can't you decide that you want to, you know, maybe if, as you retire for, as a journalist that you would want to go and teach journalism? Yeah, well. And, and, and you know, what, why can't we do that in education? And, and we think – that Indiana students would benefit from that type of expertise. Well, thanks for your confidence. Teachers work awfully hard, though, i got to say. <laughs> well, I think you do, too. Well, <laughs> All right, Don. Hey, thanks for your call. Okay, bye. All right, and now we've got uh, Daniel. Daniel? Hey, Daniel, are you there? Well, we. I think Dan- Daniel might be there. Daniel? Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm on a cell phone, and I get pretty lousy coverage here. All right. Um, in regard to the pedagogy thing, uh, my wife has a DMA in music and taught for several years as a professor at college level in a, at a college out of state. And when we arrived here in, in Bloomington, she was looking into getting a job in the, you know, like high school, junior high level, and was unable to teach because she didn't have a credential. Um, you know, but even though she had 13 years' experience teaching at the college level. So I'm wondering if this new licensing will address that sort of issue. It will. And, and again, Daniel, thank you for your question. What we, again, you know, folks like your wife are the, are the types of, of individuals we need to bring into Indiana education. We need folks who, obviously, her experience is, is huge. Right. And so, you know, we have opportunities. And again, there will be opportunities for us to take a look at these situations um, and and through the professional standards board. And I want to I have to compliment our professional standards board. And I really want to say something about our director of professional licensing, Pat Mapes, who has done a tremendous service to Indiana schools during this economic crisis. We have a number of teachers that we've been able to find flexibilities in their license, utilize issues like your wife has to keep Indiana teachers working during these difficult times so that the licensing reforms will enable us to utilize flexibility to to benefit Indiana children and, and really to put folks like your wife in front of Indiana children. And to back up just a, a little bit, you were talking about a study that was saying that um, you know, holding a master's degree didn't necessarily have a whole lot to do with whether or not that made a teacher effective. But I'm wondering whether there are enough teachers with master's degrees for that to have made any kind of a difference in the study, being as how people with advanced degrees get paid more. And since, you know, the whole education, the whole Board of Education is suffering uh, financially right now, Having people with masters or doctorates would be, you know, not necessarily a good thing in the eyes of the, you know, the board or whatever, because they have to pay them more money. Daniel, a great point. Let me clarify, and I appreciate your your comment because it brings the point. The issue really in question is the master's degree in education. Right, um, and and I think that's what you, I think that's what you were referring to. Right, you were talking about the study that was done about you know master's degrees or whatever in education, and that not really having that big of an effect on on how effective the teachers are. And, and, and there is a there is a, a pretty strong basis of research that that illustrates that point that that a master's degree in education really has not proven to drive student achievement. Okay. But nevertheless, you're talking, you know, back again to my wife's situation. She has a DMA, a doctorate in music performance, right? So with that degree, if she were going to apply, she may very likely may be passed over because she's too, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? She's She could be too high up on the salary schedule. 
Right. Exactly. Let me. How, how long ago was that, Daniel? Do you remember? Oh, you know, maybe seven years. Because I, I would need to look. At, I, I would need to look at the history a few years back, and I, I don't have the exact years ahead of in front of me. But under the, in, I think under the current law, a doctorate now provides an individual the opportunity to get an, a teaching license. That was a change that was made in the General Assembly thanks to Senator Teresa Lubbers a few years ago. You mean without going through any other? Yes. So you just, sh- just the presentation of a doctorate would allow a person to get a certificate. Yes. I, I, that is a, I think that was a piece of legislation that was passed again. Senator Teresa Lubbers ushered, ushered that through a few years back. Well, that's wonderful if that's the case. And, again, you know, as I was saying, I considering how much trouble the Board of Education is in right now and all the cuts that are having to be made, what's the likelihood of somebody with that kind of experience even being considered for a job? Well, Daniel, you actually open up a whole nother discussion, and that is the issue of performance. Right. You, you know, we, we believe, to, I believe, as superintendent of public instruction, that this state needs to move to a, uh, a system where we make these personnel decisions based on student performance, based on how a teacher performs, right, uh, and not just use seniority as the method to pay people and not just use their degree um, attainment as the method to pay people. We have a current statute that says the salary schedule must be based on degree and years of experience. And the fact is, I believe we should, we should include performance measures because then it doesn't matter as, as the, as a superintendent of public instruction, as a former school corporation, superintendent and assistant superintendent. Hey, I have to tell you, you know, some of my children's best teachers were veteran teachers. You know, uh, uh-huh. and, and frankly, I wouldn't want those teachers out of the classroom. I don't care I how old, I don't care how how much experience we have. I don't care how many how many degrees they have. I think, and I frankly speaking, I think we ought to pay our best professionals, our best teachers, like the best professionals in 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 the business. And so, I think what we should become is more blind to experience, more blind to. A degree attainment and a heck of a lot more keenly focused on how a student, a teacher performs and how that teacher helps students perform. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the issues with that, you know, on the college level, the students are paying to be there, and so it's a privilege. And if they don't attend class, then you know that's on them, right? And as you know, a professor at the college level, part of their performance is based upon student reviews. But in the K through 12 area, you know, the kids are um, compelled to attend classes. So therefore, you know, if they decide that they dislike a teacher, any kind of student evaluations of a teacher are kind of, you know, subject to interpretation, right? So, so you're talking about like a student throwing a game or something by... You know, well, but Daniel, let me let me jump in here. Let me jump in here because one of when we talk about performance, one of the things that Indiana is now taking the lead nationally on is this issue of what we refer to as student growth. Right. And, and so we will now be able to use our state's assessment tools not in a completely different way than we have in the past. In the past, we've only said do students do sixth grade students jump over sixth grade bars, and we right. know and we know that not all sixth graders come to sixth grade prepared to perform at sixth grade level. I know. So now we're going to say, does a student get a year's growth in a year of instruction? So if a sixth grader comes to a sixth grade classroom and that sixth grader is performing at third grade level, I think we should be able to measure, does that sixth grader who's working at third grade level improve to fourth grade level? Okay. So that's a whole new look, and Indiana is going to be the national leader this year. I mean, we have, we have the most comprehensive look at student growth. So if we use growth as a performance indicator for teachers, I think it's a very fair way to assess. So you're opening up a whole other line of how to evaluate. Exactly. All right, Daniel, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to move on. we got some other yeah, callers. Yeah, I can keep you going all out. I know. Thank I you very much. <laughs> Great question. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks a lot, Daniel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to a break before we take our next call because we've got another caller, and I've got a lot of places I want to follow up, I know. <laughs> so uh, we're talking to uh, Tony Bennett, the Indiana Superintendent of Public Instruction today, and uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. 
listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Indiana Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Bennett. We were engrossed in a conversation about uh, about his kids. He's a father of triplets, so he's had quite an interesting Interesting uh, time with them. Um, if you want to call us today and ask questions, uh, the number eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And our website, uh, as always, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I just wanted to, to refer to a few of the things uh, Daniel was saying and, and just follow up a little bit. I, it, I would really like it if uh, you know Gerardo Gonzalez or somebody from the IU School of Education would – would uh, check in because I know he's he's written a guest column. He, he's not uh, let's say he's not one of your biggest fans, but he talks a lot about the some of the content requirements that, that are already in place at the at some schools of education. Probably not all schools of education are the same either. So maybe he could uh, or somebody could enlighten us about the content requirements mm-hmm. at the IU school. Um, and then yeah, and Daniel had uh, you know a, a lot of good points about about the. Teachers and about you know his wife's situation. I think it's interesting. Or I, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning that it, there really is a combination of content, uh, knowledge, and uh, the ability to teach. Mm-hmm. Both those things are are important. So I just wanted to make sure we didn't get too far afield from those things. All right, we have uh, a phone call. Edward is next. Edward, hi. Hey, go ahead. Um, I'd like to find out if there's any plan at the state level to take advantage of the fact that netbook computers are now cheaper than textbooks. Some other states, California took the lead, are soliciting uh, PDFs of textbooks for free distribution. They have a number in math and science to begin with. Um, I can give a website. But uh, is anything happening? Is this uh, on the radar at the state level? Bob, I got to tell you, I'm going to take, can we take your callers and put them in a bus and I can just take them (laughs) everywhere with me? They're teeing me up today. People will think this is a setup. Edward, we were actually, Indiana was the first state in the country to to define a laptop computer or a computer as a textbook. So we actually, while we didn't make many friends with the textbook industry, um, what we've done is open up the idea that school corporations can use textbook reimbursement fees to purchase netbooks for their students and provide students real-time instruction. And let me give you a great example. If you go down to Evansville right now, Vince Mm -hmm. Bertram, the superintendent down in Evansville schools, after we did this, we took this action a year ago February, right after we got into office, uh, Vince Bertram put 7,000 laptop computers, netbooks, in, in, the, in the hands of his high school students. Um, so we, Indiana is actually, in terms of policy and, and making policy for this, we are actually the, the nation's leader in that very issue because we know that the – and, and, and Bob, if you'll let me just talk about this for a second because, Edward, you, you bring up a point that we cannot lose, mm-hmm. and that is – while textbooks are not are not the the, the the you know they are not the 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 deliverer of instruction they are undoubtedly or a, a computer is not the deliverer of instruction just as a textbook isn't a computer is undoubtedly going to be the most powerful tool a student will use in their career some form of a computer 
And, and, and when we look in some of our disadvantaged communities versus a Zionsville versus uh, some of our more affluent areas, you know, my children got their 30 minutes of computer training every week and then came home and got to play on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, disadvantaged students don't get that opportunity. So what we have done right. is if we don't address that, we're going to create a new achievement gap in the 21st century, and it's, it's the, it will be an achievement gap based on the inability of disadvantaged students to access information through technology. And so we have really tried to address that at the state, at the Department of Education. Uh, we believe it's, it's really going to help Indiana students and Indiana school corporations in terms of financial issues. So I appreciate your question, and please know that we became really a leader in the policy area in making policy to provide exactly what you asked. Okay, then how about uh, plans to actually get free textbooks? Well, there, you know, we have been working with the textbook companies on that issue. Now, the textbook companies will tell you, Edward, that the that printing the textbook is not the is not the expensive piece. It's actually the expensive piece is actually um, assembling the information. Now, I, I'm going to give you a different thought here, and I want you. To, I, I really appreciate your input on this. Um, we believe that a digital textbook is just one resource that. If we provide netbooks and we provide the right safeguards and firewalls regarding access to the Internet, that students shouldn't just rely on a digital textbook for their information. No, they have the whole Internet. Exactly. What we're seeing is we're seeing the creativity of teachers spike. For instance, up in Zionsville, Superintendent Scott Robison is, is doing this, and he is seeing his teachers do incredible things by using real-time data, real-time information off the Internet to, to, as, as an instructional resource. So it's, we're working with the textbook, textbook companies, but we're also utilizing the vast information that's on the Internet. Well, there's, uh, there are more resources um, in the software world, people who haven't done textbooks in the past. I think what I should do, actually, is call your office after this show is over and see if we can uh, get together on this. Please. We are, you know, okay. we have, we, uh, again, we, we use these opportunities to make education better for students, and I appreciate your input and your insights on this. Okay. Well, All right. I know I'm working with people who've been on this line for more than 40 years from Small Talk and Logo in the 60s who would love to discuss how we can make all this work and save Indiana um, and a lot of other places some real money. Great. Hey, Edward. Instruction. Thanks a lot so for your I'll call. Talk to you another time. Thank okay. you, sir. All right, Edward. Thank thanks you. a lot. We're going to go uh, to next to Frank. Frank, go ahead. Hi, this is Frank. Yeah, hi, Frank. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I am really baffled by the entire subject of today's discussion, and here's the reason why. Just yesterday, in the Indianapolis Star, they were saying that due to the depression that we're in, Hundreds of teachers throughout the state of Indiana have lost their jobs, and hundreds more teachers in the state of Indiana will be losing their jobs next year and probably the year after that. And you're on the show encouraging people to get into the teaching profession. And these people who are losing their jobs have their master's degrees and have spent their entire lives teaching and are excellent teachers. So my question to you is, where is it? on planet Earth that they're hiring teachers? And how does one get to this place? That's my question. Sure. Uh, Frank, and, and I think, please understand that in each and every situation, we have, we have school corporations all over the state that are hiring teachers. Um, now, those teachers may be content area specific. Again, I, let, me, let me use a, a good example. Um, you know, we have school corporations over the sta- all over the state that are saying, we need a chemistry teacher. We need a physics teacher because maybe that wasn't the certification area of, of a teacher who was being reduced due to economic reasons, and they didn't have a person with the content preparation for that. So, but, but I, and Frank, your point's well taken. We, we do have, and, and frankly speaking, I think there, were, there are a number of, uh, of, measures we could take to mitigate teacher loss, but that's, that's a whole other discussion. My, dis- my point is that education as a profession has been cyclical in terms of, of 
the availability of teachers. When I came out of teacher ed in the nineteen in the, the mid nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties, I was told we were all told, don't be a social studies teacher, don't be a PE teacher, you know, don't be a be, don't really even be a language arts teacher. You need to be math, sci- math and science. So we've seen we've seen a cyclical um, you know, cyclical model of the need for teachers. So, but there are teachers, and make no mistake, we do have content area teachers out there who are being hired in Indiana schools. All right, Frank, thanks a lot. And I'll just follow up because I, I think Frank had a had a really good point because there are a lot of teachers who are losing their jobs. And, and you know, you, we, we, this discussion isn't only about the new licensing mm-hmm. requirements. So, you know, it's about all things happening in, in the public schools. But Frank was uh, good to pick up on that. It was a good question. Uh, let's go to Pam next. Pam? Hello. Hello, Pam. Go ahead. Yeah. First of all, I want to say I'm a teacher. I came in this conversation a little late. I probably turned on listened, started listening about quarter after 12 because this is our last day of school and I'm on a late lunch break here. So, um, and I want to say I'm a teacher, very proud teacher to be in the Vigo County School Corporation. Um, and my question has to do with performance um, based with pay. You said student performance should definitely be tied to pay. And I guess I'm a little concerned as to how exactly that works out with um, you are talking about evaluations of teachers and, in other words, not going by seniority as most school corporations do now. Sure. And my question, I guess, is, is um, I mean, most teachers, well, in our school corporation, are evaluated formally every three years once you have been teaching over five years. And informally, of course, we're evaluated all the time, you know, as you know that in education. And I guess um, my concern is that, you know, you're more senior teachers if there are problems with their performance, it's usually noted long before, you know, they get to the five-year state or, you know, even before their three-year formal evaluations come up after that. So I guess I don't quite understand your criteria. Sure. Uh, first of all, let me, let me speak to one of the issues very directly, and that is that I, I fundamentally disagree with evaluating people every three years formally. Um, I think that is also a point of contention in what we will see in the reauthorization of ESEA, which we have for many years referred to as No Child Left Behind. Right. I think we'll see to it, in the re- I think we'll see it in the reauthorization of our title, our federal title grants, uh, because the federal government has taken a strong position that all teachers should be formally evaluated every year. And that performance, that student data, student growth data be included in those evaluations. And as you know, Pam, there's a a stat right now, we have a statutory prohibition against linking student performance and teacher evaluation. Um, So I I guess my my position on that has been, and it's always been this way, is that I believe as we move to student growth, and as we measure student growth, because I, I do agree, and I think you, you would get me to agree with you that student achievement is not the right measure for a teacher evaluation. Because if you're a sixth grade teacher and a child walks into your room uh, performing at the third grade level, that student's achievement will not show up on your evaluation. So I believe student growth is a measure. I believe we should measure that, and I think it should be a component of our teacher evaluations, that how much do students grow when they're in the care of a teacher. And, and, and right, but who determines that growth? Because as you just said, students come, students come to school at all different levels of abilities and, and readiness. And Pam, that's you know, a, Every year it changes. No, and, that's, that, and you know what? The, the, the new growth year, model... So, the new growth model that Indiana is rolling out is a, is a highly, highly, highly individualized. It's, matter of fact, it's the most comprehensive look at individual student growth in the United States. So we will be able to take a student, and, and if we were visual, if we were in a visual setting, I could do this. And we're actually doing, we're actually putting out WebExes, and we're inviting teachers to engage. So I would really encourage you to, take, to participate in one of these. But you will see that a child who enters your classroom at a certain level we will be able to ascertain how much that child has grown at the end of that year. And, and, and that is individualized to all children. 
So that, you know, we... Is that individualized to every teacher that child has that year? If, if, and and Pam, that's a, that's a great question because one of the issues... The student may have eight teachers a day. You're, you're correct. And on that issue, again, now right now, and, and I think we have to be fair, right now we are addressing this issue in terms of English language arts and math because those are the, the two areas that, um, that we will have the assessment measure in. Now, we have school corporations across the state who integrate English language arts and math across the curriculum, and, and they're doing some really unique things um, up in Elkhart with this. But I think we will be able to answer many of these questions. And again, they won't. It, this, this whole thing won't be flushed out perfectly, Pam, believe me. But we need to move to a more performance-based, because the current system isn't perfect. I mean, it's, to me, it's kind of, I always ask myself, why do we always argue for what we have when it's not perfect, and we don't want to change to something else that be, may no, be I don't think I don't think that's the case either. But it seems to me, especially in the economic climate we have right now, that classroom teachers are almost being bullied. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's the way it is, because it's a really hard job that I think most people in the public underestimate exactly how difficult it is. And um, I don't know. I have to say, I don't feel like your office has always been exactly friendly to, you know, having input from classroom teachers. Uh, Well, let me me address that, Bob. That's okay. That's a very fair comment, Pam. Uh, You know, when we did... The evaluation piece of our race to the top, we, we had uh, very, very intense discussions with the Indiana Federation of Teachers, the Indiana State Teachers Association. They actually brought classroom teachers to the table. We actually had a framework of agreement uh, from the ISTA and the IFT on the issue. Um, you know, and, and, and I really travel around the state. We've put over 70,000 miles on our car meeting with individual teachers, individual principals, individual superintendents. So, you know, while I think it's sometimes very difficult to get all of the input everyone wants, uh, I have to tell you, we've been vigilant about getting out there and trying to get input. And as a matter of fact, on many of our initiatives right now, we've invited all the stakeholders to the table on a new school accountability system. And we've invited the, the ISTA, the IFT, the Superintendents Association, the Principals Association, the PTA to come forward and help us. So uh, if we have shortcomings, we'll certainly try our best to address them. Pam, I'm going to let you go back to work. I know it's your last day, you. yeah. so, but I appreciate your call. <laughs> and gonna, thank you for your service to our kids, Pam. I need to say you. that. Yeah. And I want to try to thank summarize you. summarize a little bit. I mean, Pam was talking about, you know, how do you do these evaluations? And I think what I heard you say, uh, Dr. Bennett, is that the the growth model you're going to implement is going to be in, in basically math and English. Mm-hmm. So, so it wouldn't be every teacher – getting the benefit of that in the beginning, but you would look at that first and then see if it could be expanded. Well, and Bob, I think that's an interesting point because, again, I'm going to go back to Elkhart. You heard me in, in kind of passing mention Elkhart, and, and Mark Mao, the superintendent up there, actually worked this out with his association. So I want to say that this is part of that local control discussion, how things can be worked out locally with teachers. But, but Mark had piloted a differentiated pay model in Elkhart at a school that basically said this um, – we're going to do math and language arts across the curriculum. So the PE teacher had a chance to make more money based on the growth or the performance of students because he or she was contributing in some manner in an, in an interdisciplinary approach to teaching English language arts and math. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of different options. And again, that's where the, the, the issue of local school corporations working with their teachers can help us in many ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I also want, I want to address the issue uh, that you're not friendly to teachers because I think some people may have saw, may have seen the story that AP had yesterday. It was in our paper and you were quoted in it uh, that the head of the, uh, the American Federation of Teachers said that Indiana's Department of Education is one of the three most hostile to teachers in the country. And I know you took exception to that characterization. Well, first, you know, you know, I, I don't know. I've never met Randy Weingarten, and I don't know that she's been to Indiana since I've been here. So I don't know the how other than, you know, hearsay that that comment can be made. Um, but, but, Bob, I have to say, you know, I said this to you off the air. If, if you know, we, we hope – that one of the things we can do better is just as I said to Pam, thank you for your service 
we need to do a better job, and I, I will try to do a better job of making sure we don't lump good teachers with bad teachers. And we need to be very honest. And this is a very th- this this will rub people the wrong way when I say it. We do have teachers that do not belong in Indiana's classroom in Indiana schools today. You know, we are dealing with 23 underperforming schools across the state. And in one of those schools in the northwestern part of the state, the administration gave us this statistic. 75% of the teachers in that high school, they would not put their children or grandchildren in their classes. And yet they haven't evaluated them. They, the, the administration has also not done their job. If they read the, co- the column that Matt Tully did on Dr. White and the meeting Dr. White and I had, Dr. White said in his five high schools, five of the six high schools that are on year four of probation, he had 60% of his teachers he defined as as ineffective, which he said was unwilling, and the Indiana State Teachers Association Uniserve director and the president of the union were sitting right next to him and didn't dispute those numbers. So it's not an issue where Tony Bennett's hostile. I think what we have to do is make sure we don't lump Indiana's great teachers in with those situations where Indiana teachers aren't serving Indiana children. Okay, and Dr. White is? The superintendent of Indianapolis Public Schools. Okay. All right. Uh, we have a couple of emails. We have another caller. Sure. Tom, Tom, I'll get to you in a minute. But uh, one of the emails says, what are you going to do to ensure that your high stakes assessments are valid to measure the growth you're talking about? Well, Tom, thank you for the question. First, Indiana's I-STEP. Indiana's a leader, been a national leader long before Tony Bennett came on the scene in two areas. One is standard setting. And um, two is assessment. The I-STEP test has been tried over and over and over again, and it's it's been proven to be a valid high stakes test. And as a matter of fact, it's one of the it's it's one of the models nationally uh, regarding student assessment. So you know that that question's been answered many times. Mm-hmm. All right, I think uh, this this wasn't Tom. This was from an emailer, but uh, and I think she would disagree with that. But I'm not going to go into that any further. <laughs> it says, uh, furthermore, though, how do you justify the enormous amounts of money spent on high stakes assessment at the cost of resources in the classroom? Well, first, you know, I'm going to I'm going to approach that in another way, Bob, and that is how every one of us who went to college used a high stakes test to get there. And many, many professionals across the country, utilize, you have to utilize a test to get licensed, certified, whatever they do. Uh, the other thing I would say is this. We know that if we don't have some measure, um, we currently have many students who pass, who, who really are passing our end-of-course assessments, which is a, a test. It's a standardized test, but are also getting diplomas from Indiana schools who require remediation when they get to college. And that's a complaint by the, the higher ed community. So uh, I, we have to find the right way of making sure we assess students and their college and career readiness. And, and frankly speaking, I, I, would, I would say that it's, um, it's an issue where the human element um, sometimes doesn't serve as well either. Mm-hmm. All right. And this other email uh, refers to IU's Nobel Prize winner, Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, she was a guest on our show a couple of weeks ago. It said, um, you know, are you aware of her uh, research regarding public school consolidation, quality education, and related issues? And have you consulted with her or do you have any plans to do so? Well, uh, I do know of her. Uh, I, at the point, at this point, Bob, I have to tell you, we have not frankly speaking, we have not uh, pursued school consolidation as a huge initiative. School consolidation was part of the Kernan-Shepard report. Um, My only statement about consolidation, and you've heard me make this time and time again, is it is not a numbers thing. It should not be based on the number of kids. And I've always said that I I personally do not believe that's the right metric in the Kernan-Shepard report. It should be about educational opportunities for children. So because of the fact that we haven't you know, I have been looking more at student achievement issues. We have not been focused on consolidation. As a matter of fact, it's not on our radar screen. So um, I probably haven't. But when we get to that point, I'm sure we will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we have about three minutes to go. Tom is still on the line. Tom? Yeah. Hey, thanks for your patience, Tom. Yes. Uh, I have been following the Indianapolis Star rather regularly. And this morning, Matthew Tully finally gave you a barely passing grade. (laughs) (laughs) I was interested um, in that the IPS system 
obviously has some serious problems, and he's been following Manual High School very closely. And how would you interpret that? And as far as that goes, Bob, what about you embedding a reporter in one of our high schools? Boy, Bob, I'm going to let, let you take the first crack. Oh, I'll consider it. Okay. There now, we I'm go. Off to you. <laughs> Tom, great question. Yes, and I want to say this about Matthew Tully's series. And, Tom, I would hope you would agree. I believe that will garner Matthew Tully a Pulitzer Prize. It should. Uh, it should. And I, in fact, I'll be honest with you. I think that every newspaper in this state should do just as he did. And that is take a very serious look at the problems in our schools and what can we do about it, you know, and take it from there. Well, you know, Tom, let me say this in wrapping up. And, and Bob's told me I have one He's minute. got one minute now. Tom, the one thing the Indianapolis Star has done that I hope every newspaper in the state has done is they have brought this issue to the forefront in their community. The Star has made it a mission to bring the education debate forward, to bring it to the attention of the communities what we must do, what the fierce sense of urgency we must have to to address education in our state. And I applaud the Star. I actually applaud Superintendent White for giving Matt Tully that access. And I'm like you, Tom. I would love to see that type of opportunity in, in many communities throughout our state. All right, Tom. Thanks a lot. I'm going to have to cut you off because we are out of time. And I'll add my congratulations to the star. They did a very nice job with that. So I, I do applaud them, and we'll consider what we can do here. Uh, but anyway, Dr. Tony Bennett, thank you for being here. Thank you. Bob, it's All wonderful, right. and I appreciate what you do. Is uh, I think you guys do a tremendous job in Bloomington here covering education, and, and I appreciate the opportunities you give us to tell the story. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Uh, I want to thank uh, our producer today, Ariana Prothero, and Daniel Robinson was in there for a little bit, uh, engineer Mike Pashkash, uh, my co-host Mary Catherine, who couldn't be with us today. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.